Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, our topic is getting started with miniatures war games. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined, as always, by my expert associate who knows all the things about miniatures war games. My name's Ed, my pronouns are they and them. I've relocated from my mountain range bunker uh, out here to a shack in the woods where I'm currently teaching squirrels how to play D&D. How's that going, by the way? A lot of druid characters. That seems to be the only thing. And they're always in wild shape all the time, so it makes communicating hard. Well, I mean, at least their nature proficiency is pretty good, so that's nice. I think that to play with only squirrels, you'd have to be nuts. That I am. I, I got no other good way to land that joke. Just crashing it straight into the ground. <laughs> crashing it straight into the ground like the Russian Air Force. Oh! oh! Well, we... I mean, I don't think any of the games we're going to talk about today really involve the Russian Air Force. Although, there's one or two where a... A Russian Air Force might show up. Because today we're going to talk about getting started with miniatures war games. What sort of games are good for beginners? What are some of the good entry-level things? And we'll go through a giant list I have of miniature war games and say which ones we think you might want to try out if you're just getting into the thing, if you want to do new hobby stuff, if you want different types of things. But... Before we get into that, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. I'll go first. Mine's pretty quick. I had two Everon games this week. Plus, I did a little bit of painting, but not as much as I have in the last couple of weeks because work happens. Uh, Boo, my Everon games. Slave to capitalism. Yes, yes, indeed. Wage slave. Uh, in my Everon games, the first one continued the dungeon that they were crawling. They fought a white and a couple of ogres. They, you know, investigated some ruins. They nearly lost a party member to a giant rug of smothering. <laughs> um, surprisingly hard fight, that one. Um, and then they kind of inadvertently released a succubus who charmed one of the party members, who in fact charmed the cleric and party tank. And was trying to get him to lead her back to the surface. And eventually the rest of the party like realized shit was up and broke it off into an actual fight. And she, on the verge of getting killed, popped into the ethereal plane and ran away. Um, this is this is where you need to put in like the seventies porno music in your roll twenty soundboard. Bow chicka wow wow goes the succubus yep. as she like talks animatedly with the Warforged, who obviously not interested in those sorts of things, the Dark Elf, who is gay, or the 15-year-old girl. Illegal! Yeah, none of these options really work. She she only managed to charm the, Warf charm the Warforged, so that was, you know, presumably she held a magnet near him for a while. Not sure how I'm that sure there's Warforged. I'm sure there's a lot of jokes that I could make, but I guess this is nominally a family-friendly podcast, an all-ages podcast. The fuck you say? <laughs> exactly. Yes, she uh, she turned his floppy disk into a hard drive. Wait, no. <laughs> um, in any case, she escaped. The party like reconvened and sort of did some exploration and started to decide what their next move was. Um, in the meantime, she she left. She turned ethereal and, like, flew away. They had told her that they have a ship. They do not realize that she is going back to the surface. She is going to charm their crew, and she is going to leave them stranded at this dungeon... Without their airship. The ultimate breakup. And they're, you know, 
presumably I think they're going to take a long rest here, so she's going to have left several days before they get back to the surface at this point. Um, yeah, that's going to be a problem. They're going to be very angry about this. Which is why I'm going to have her, like, have marooned a couple of the more interesting crew members at the edge of the dungeon for them to learn about this from. My other D&D group went off on a little side tangent when a former enemy slash antagonist, he was never directly trying to, like, kill the party for the sake of killing the party. He was fighting them because they got in the way of him and his plans. Um, he convinced them to help him out with a job in exchange for some information. Uh, they helped him out with the job which involved fighting a ghost shark <laughs> and a bunch of like ghosts and undead that had broken out of a research facility that was like a naval combat. And it, they were <sighs> the Carnathy military was developing naval undead. In this case, a ghost shark that could be used to interdict shipping headed to rival nations. Sounds like the D and D equivalent of deep blue sea. It was a combination of Deep Blue Sea and Jaws. <laughs> that was the that was the whole concept here. Um, however, they did find a map to pirate treasure, and it's unclear as to whether they will be distracted by the pirate treasure or pull themselves back to the main plot. So I gotta work up what exactly is going on with pirate treasure for the next session. Um, I'm gonna guess pirate treasure because player characters. Perhaps pirate treasure is going to be a thing. Uh, the thing is, of course, they don't know this yet, but the pirate treasure is also being looked for by the guy who had been in charge of the creating ghost shark facility. And his obsession with sharks has not abated. So a crew of, like, half sharks and various necromancy slash shark related things are all going to be are all going to be there to challenge them when they show up for this pirate treasure. I like it. It's Shark Week, motherfuckers. <laughs> also did nice. some painting, just some terrain piece stuff. A uh, little bit of work done on the four Legion guys that I have primed and sitting on my desk. Because once I knock these four guys out, I will have no unfinished Legion miniatures. Yay! Time to like, celebrate. Yeah, the time to celebrate by buying more Legion miniatures. The best way to celebrate. I mean, I think I can knock these out this weekend, so that shouldn't take that long. Um, mostly it's a matter of just matching my previously painted guys. Which can sometimes be tricky. But yeah, those yeah. guys will get done, and then I'll uh, be down to what? Like three, four primed miniatures that I need to paint, and a whole bunch of unprimed stuff. And then it sounds like you just need to get a whole bunch of new stuff to prime, because you know what's worse than gray plastic is no gray plastic. I have multiple unopened boxes of sprues. I, I have a, a box of the... of a Necromunda faction, something we will talk a little bit about today. And I have a box of the um, Frameworks D&D Kobolds that are still unopened. So, you know, I, I, I got plenty of stuff to work my way through. Um, how about you, Ed? What has your week in hobby been? Um, I have to observe a two-week period of mourning because my 3D printer is as dead as the British monarch. Uh, so you may now commence mourning. Uh, have some parts. Amazing grace. How... <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the sound it makes. Um, have some parts on the way. Hopefully it's just that the screen is dead since the screens have a uh, fairly set life expectancy uh, before the laser burns out, or I guess LCD in this case. Um, so hopefully there's like nothing down in there that's mucked with the motherboard that would require a whole replacement because I just don't want to have to deal with replacing a whole 3D printer. I have other things I'd rather spend that money on. Uh, I've been doing some slap chop painting 
on my Space Dwarves, which that's that clicking that you hear in the background is me shaking the contrast paint vials since contrast paint needs a very vigorous thrashing uh, lest you end up with all medium and no pigment because the pigment really likes to settle into the bottom of the uh, jar here. Uh, the first couple of them that I did came out pretty much better than I could have ever anticipated. So I'm hoping that the next ones will come out looking just as good. The first ones that I did, they took longer than the uh, alleged like 20 minute mark that supposed slap shot painting can get you finished in. But it was the first time trying it had didn't quite have a handle on what I was working on. But hopefully these go faster and then we'll have nice uh, looking dwarves to do Stargrave with. Uh, and then other than that, pretty much just went on a bit of a uh, shopping spree for board game related stuff. Uh, got a She-Hulk expansion for Crisis Protocol that is starting to mirror my actual comic book collection where it's a lot of us being just sat down untouched because I just don't have time to read comic books lately. Um, what else? I ordered some new stuff for Infinity, some medium infantry for my army, and a high-value target character, which was an exclusive for, I think, Gen Con this year. I'm not 100% sure, um, but I got one of those uh, secondhand, so supposedly has an interesting uh, mission to go along with it. And then I received a copy of Don't Look Back from Black Sight Studios, which is a Ooh, yes. 80s I've seen slasher movie theme. Yeah, um, I'm excited for it. It looks like it's a fairly simple go-to game. I just wasn't sure how many people would actually be able to get to play it since I don't quite know as much about your taste in movies, but I don't know how hot you are on old school slasher stuff. Um, I'm not super big on it, but I'd be willing to try it, try anything once. Yeah. And there's a, a lot of content out there for it, which I assume either means that it's popular or the game is just so easy to write stuff for that. They just keep popping stuff out. Um, there's, miniature expansions and STL files that the company produces for pretty much any horror genre, horror movie you want to replicate. Um, you can get Scooby-Doo stuff. You can get Stranger Things, um, pretty much any slasher movie monster. Uh, they have one that's supposed to be Florence Pugh's character from Midsommar, uh, which is kind of weird since she's not really the killer in that movie, but who cares? It's a neat looking uh, folk horror, folk, folk horror model. Um, yeah. And I've got a miniature of Lady Demetresque from Resident Evil 8, who would also make a good uh, villain for that game. So that'll be exciting to put together. Um, I, think I have a we'll, lot of ideas. I think after we um, play it, we'll probably have to do an episode about it. Yeah. Um, biggest thing right now is I don't have a whole lot of good terrain to go for it. I really don't have a whole lot of terrain in general. I've uh, got some good outdoors stuff. I don't have a whole lot of modern stuff, but I'm working on that. Yeah, majority of the stuff from the... Uh, the core rulebook, a lot of it is very much like outdoorsy summer camp, campground type stuff. But I don't know, maybe there maybe there's something to be said for doing like a cyberpunk slasher and we use our infinity terrain to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that could be cool. I mean, I, mean, I don't think there are, are many cyberpunk horror movies out there, which is a shame. There should probably be more. You might almost consider... Um... Uh, uh, Blade Runner to be cyberpunk horror. Yeah, 
It's a possibility. At least the original one. Um, and there are certain episodes of the Ghost in the Shell show, uh, standalone complex, that are cyberpunk horror. Yeah, that um, works too. There's one with a serial killer who is, like, stripping people's skin off. Eh, I don't think I remember that one yet. It's yeah. been a while since I watched the show. Good episode, actually. It, it, you know, it has a lot about, like war on terror kind of stuff going on in that one which is interesting um so yeah there's there's certainly some options for that um and i that, think that's pretty much it so there you have it the weekend hobby take it or leave it i don't care take it or leave <laughs> it the week's over we're doing a podcast so getting started with miniatures war games You've played board games, you perhaps have played a role-playing game, and you've seen the miniatures, and you very much like them, and you started painting them, and you've thought, man, I want to use these to play a game. And you look online, and you see millions of games, and many of them with huge, massive collections of miniatures that, when you look at prices, there are thousands of dollars to play, and you go, holy crap, what do I do? Well, this podcast uh, is going to answer, what do you do? Well, first you get a credit card, and then you go to your local G-Dub store, and you spend $400 on a, a two-player starter set. Well, that is certainly one option. It's not the option I would recommend. Nor would I recommend that option either, because that's uh, more, more or less kind of how my entry into Wargaming started was by starting off with expensive Warhammer shenanigans. Same. Don't repeat my experience. Yes. It's a lot easier. So there are a huge number of Wargames, and I've got a big old list here. And I think the most important thing when you are starting out is finding someone to play with. Generally important. Yeah, because otherwise, if you're the only person in your town that plays a particular Wargame then it's not really a war game. It's a a solo experience, which some of them do support solo play, but not a lot of war games do. That's uh, that's for something like Rangers of Shadow Deep. Go listen to our episode on Rangers of Shadow Deep to learn more. Yeah, that's... Oh, I was going to say, that's one of... For me, there's like generally four four things that you need to consider when you're starting a game. And one of them is being your, your capacity to be a game advocate and, you know, how willing are you to try and push a game on your friends or random people on the street or random woodland critters and be like, Hey, we should try playing this and being able to persuade them that, yes, this is a good idea. Yes. And in this case, I would say that you should check with your local game store you should check with local Facebook groups that might exist for war games or tabletop games and find out what games are being played in your area. Because if you live in a town that has a very active scene for certain games, then that's a, you know, that can influence, that should really influence what you're going to play. Now, that being said, there are some games that you can kind of get a scene started on your own with very little work. Uh, certain things are very easy to start and very fun to play and, you know, get people into them immediately. Uh, we'll talk about some of those. Uh, those tend to be, you know, those tend to be a little different. Um, so, Ed, you mentioned you had four things and one of them was, you know, how willing are you to be the advocate for the game? What are the other three? What are the other three things you think about when considering whether you, uh, you should start a game. So one of them you already touched on was basically what are the people in your area playing? Um, you know, it's not any good to have a shiny new game if there's nobody who is out there wanting to play it. Um, in our local area, I know for a while Kill Team was a big thing. Um, Song of Ice and Fire surprisingly caught on pretty well. Um, up until the pandemic, they were running uh, Song of Ice and Fire leagues at our local store, um, which unfortunately I never got to join into just because uh, work and then pandemic well, kind of screwed that up. I got good news for you. 
They posted on Facebook. They're starting gaming stuff again next week. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, still too early for you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it sucks when there's a pandemic going on and you have, uh, extended family members who are living with you and uniquely vulnerable to the pan to said pandemic. And basically the rest of the world is like, yep, pandemic's over. No need for any safety of any kind. So yeah, if you're going to go play a game, uh, I guess at least wear a mask. Anyway. Um, so yeah, what, what your, your local people like to play is important since it's going to be a lot easier to get started um, playing the game if you're not necessarily having to convince people that, yes, this is a good idea. If you can just drop into a game, that's great. Then you get to know more people in your game circle, and those people would probably be easier to move on to other games rather than just showing up randomly and be like, hey, let's uh, let's play this new game that nobody's heard about. And then the uh, last one, or was that, was that three or four? Oh, two. Uh, next one is what kind of stuff are you into? Are you a sci-fi nerd? Are you a uh, uh, fantasy nerd? Are you a history nerd? Because those are generally the big like three categories of uh, war game that you're going to find. One of those three, and obviously whichever category you fall under is going to have an impact on the game you want to play. And then how much money do you want to spend? since you could conceivably start playing for under $5 or you could start playing for $400. just depends on how much time and money you want to sink into this hobby and how much value it has for you. If you're somebody who's like, eh, I play, you know, board games every once in a while, we get together and, you know, it's not something that you see yourself doing as a major thing. Maybe start out with a smaller game that doesn't cost as much. If you're somebody who wants to be super competitive and go play 40k at Nova Open, uh, you should probably invest in 40k and, you know, start ransacking your little, your local meta. Um, yeah, so those are the, the four things that I think are most important when it comes to choosing what game you want to play, or at least how, how you get started since you're going to move on to other games eventually. Yeah. So, with that out of the way, with your uh, things that you think are important, some of those are things that I also think are important. I think, you know, what people around near you play, what your budget is going to be, what your, you know, what you can afford to purchase, um, the scale of the game in terms of how many models are, gonna, are needed. Some games require just a handful of pieces to be on the board. Others require massive armies, and so... You know, there can be a difference in how much time you're willing to invest into setting up your thing. And last... Do not get started with the Imperial Guard. Yeah. Or, or like, goblins in just about any fantasy game. Uh, and then, you know, lastly, one you kind of mentioned, what are your interests? What, what themes do you want to see in a game? So let's start going through some of the games that are popular and are played in various places around. And we'll talk about what the pros and cons of starting with them are. And the first one, the most popular war game, as far as I know, currently. Warhammer 40k. Boo! But also, yay, because it's my favorite science fiction setting. It's a good science fiction setting. As a game, it's kind of... Alright, pros. Warhammer 40k is incredibly widespread and incredibly well-established. You will find people playing it in any decently-sized community with a game store. Uh, the models are easily available. Again, they make lots of them. There are YouTube channels dedicated just to the game and just to painting the miniatures and just to talking about new releases and discussing games and all sorts of stuff. It's easy to like learn about cons it is expensive it is very expensive and you're gonna have a hard time especially initially like painting models to the standards that you will see on the internet and that can be very frustrating 
it also requires a lot of models for the most part, uh, with some weird exceptions, weird outliers like, say, Grey Knights or Imperial Knights. Most armies for 40k are probably in the 50 models range or more. Um, yeah, sounds about right. I think 40 to 50 is probably about right because you need four to five squads plus some vehicles. It, it You have to paint a lot of stuff for the most part to really play a full-sized game of Warhammer 40k. Um, yeah, I, and the armies... I don't remember the last time I counted my Space Marines, but I at least had, like, two squads of ten Marines each, and then, like, a unit of five uh, scouts, and I had a retinue of, I think, five dudes for my commander, plus a vehicle... So I had at least yeah, at least thirty, at least maybe thirty guys. Yeah, and you were playing one of the factions that's a little more expensive too. Yep. Um, and we weren't really playing full sized games; we were playing slightly scaled down. Yeah, that was my army. Uh, I think was maybe fifteen hundred points if I gave everybody all the fancy toys. I seem to recall I don't us think... playing a fifteen hundred point game. Yeah, I don't think we ever played a 2000 point game of 40 K or fantasy. Cause I remember I had fantasy characters who I wanted to use, but you can only take them as Lord choices and you only get one Lord per 2000 points. And we never ever got to play yes. with that many points. I've have played a couple of 2000 point games of 40 K. Um, not against you against some other people. And like I was placing down easy 50, 60 models, uh, just between like, three full units of my infantry choice plus a pathfinder unit plus three transports plus two t heavy tanks plus a heavy guy plus my scout units plus my like elite infantry units you know i had a lot of stuff to go on the table yep um and sometimes my opponents had more stuff but yeah. And this is why we should all play Epic 40K, because it's 6 millimeter. It's so much faster to paint. Yes, they're much smaller, and you get more of them. Uh, so, so it's expensive, and it has a lot of moving pieces. And also, in part due to the release schedule and the way it's set up, the rules are not great. It's a lot of D6s. It's a lot of my rules supersede your rules. It's uh, bigger numbers are better. It's it's not a good rule set, in my opinion. I don't like it. I find most of how it works to be frustrating. Uh, that's... Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of drama this week over the new uh, Space Dwarf Codex because out of the box they were extremely broken, and uh, everybody's like, yeah, basically nobody is going to play anything other than squats because squats will destroy anything that comes for them yeah i and so they kind of their their newly minted you know newly printed codexes got a week one nerf and that's you know that's just the thing you want when you buy a 60 dollar book is to be like oh yeah it's already been faq'd sorry yeah personally i feel like that was entirely overblown and that it's hard to determine whether or not an army is ludicrously overpowered before major events with it have happened. Um, also true. Like, I think that's theory crafting. And also, I think if you care about balance in 40k, there is something wrong with your head. Yeah, it's not, it's never, it's never be been a balanced game. Why should it start now? Um, and also, most people pick their 40k armies for rule of cool nobody rushes out and buys a brand new army because it's going to win them a tournament like i i think this was entirely overblown whining by space marine players who are afraid they were going to lose and, my, and that's a little bit mean-spirited but also somewhat factual in my opinion in my my mind yeah. so let's go on to the next one also made by although i I will say, if you do want to play 40k, um, there are a couple of ways that you can kind of worm your way in there. One of them is through uh, Kill Team, which they came wait, out with a new version. Wait for it. Wait for it. 
Wait, wait for it. Wait for All it. Right. Uh, the next one on our list is Age of Sigmar, also by Games Workshop. It's the fantasy version of 40k. It has all of the same sort of things about how to how it's popular, how it's readily available, but is expensive and rules aren't great. Um, it was it was good for a while. There was kind of a there was a good spot between when it first came out and the rules were literally like anything goes and people were like, there's no structure to this game and it's essentially unplayable. And then they started to make some fixes to it. And, you know, it was kind of a good middle ground where you could use all of your old uh, Warhammer fantasy stuff from the old line. And then they had a couple of things from the new uh, dedicated Age of Sigmar stuff. But then as the additions went on, it just got taken over more and more by the new Age of Sigmar stuff. And, you know, then they basically remade a Warhammer fantasy. <laughs> I will say it has some very cool models and yes, some really cool fantasy models. Uh, not all of them are hideously over sculpted, although many of them are. Um, I, from what I see in the modern ones, Taking terrain pieces is like a function of your army building, and that's just weird. It's weird, but I also kind of dig it. I don't... It seems like an interesting game space that hasn't really been looked at, at least in the Warhammer realm. That and, like, living spells. Yes. Living spells and, uh, you know, terrain pieces that are part of your army. Living spells? Shamelessly stolen from Eberron? Yeah, I find that incredibly fascinating as a gameplay potential. So I don't, I don't hate that fact. But yes, we will talk it's, about it. It's another game that I probably will never play. <laughs> we will talk about some other games where choice of terrain is an element of the game itself. Um, but let's say you want to play Warhammer. You you like the setting. You like the way the models look, but you don't have five hundred dollars to drop right here and now. And, and and you can't carry around a 50-model army all the time. What do you do? Well, you got three options. And they are Necromunda, Kill Team, and Warcry. Necromunda is a skirmish game version of... Skirmish game descended from 40k where you play as gangs, um, like, rumbling it out on a... in a city tower metropolis known as necromunda it's like a grimdark cyberpunk it's grimdark cyberpunk exactly and you know it's a classic of the genre it has some really interesting setting stuff and some interesting mechanics it's actually mechanically it is much better than 40k um especially in terms of like what how the game works and how stuff progresses uh, and is more approachable because you only need about a dozen models to play it. Uh, that being fun fact, uh, fun fact, because the internet exists, you can also go back if you want to get really old school. Uh, you can go back and find the original second edition rules for Necromunda, which have some interesting stuff on their own. Uh, but there was also another book published mid twenty teens called Shadow War Armageddon which was essentially the second edition Necromunda rules just with the gangers removed and replaced with the regular 40k armies. I mean, that gets into the next one, which is Kill Team, which is essentially if you want to play a skirmish game, but you don't want to play gangs, you just want to play regular soldiers, like the same ones you get in the normal boxes of troops for 40k. Uh, Kill Team has some issues in that its rules try to be more consistent with the 40k rules-ish, except they're not. Um, but there, there seems to be a lot of very specific cases and very powerful individual models in uh, Kill Team, much more so than Necromunda, where you have a bunch of like, derpy guys running around with guns trying to, like, plink shots at each other and maybe one dude with a flamethrower. Kill Team has 
it's like you're running a squad of heroes for the most part. Everybody's doing something special and cool. Uh, which yeah, and when it comes to kill team, you got a you got a couple of options. You can go really old school and play uh, Shadow War, and then there's also the I think it was 2016 when Kill Team got its first official reboot. Um, it's a pretty solid rule set. There are a couple of things that I was not a fan of, but it wasn't enough to be like, no, this game sucks. And then there's the newest version, which came out uh, two years ago now, a year ago. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, it is interesting. That's it's got kind of a love it or hate it vibe in the community. Yeah, uh, I I think it's interesting, but I'm not in. But I personally don't want to play it. Yeah, I I bought the box because I like Kill Team, and it also came with uh, the Commando Orcs and the first plastic uh, reissue of Death Corps of Krieg, which are the World War One German Imperial Guard guys, and they're just so badass. Yes, the uh, the Death Corps of Krieg is one of the most fun things about 40k. Yeah, but I still have I still have like my old uh, Kill Team book. And now that the game is officially not supported, you can still find used copies at either your local game store or used bookstore. And I mean, G-dubs, they're not going to come knock down your door and reclaim your old copy of Kill Team. So if you can, Yet. go ahead and go ahead and get it because you can still play it. It's still perfectly playable. Yes. Even with the new the new Death Corps of Creed guys. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, and the last one on the, like, Warhammer skirmish games is Warcry, uh, which is kill team for Warhammer Age of Sigmar. It's fantasy band of heroes fighting other bands of skirmishy heroes. Uh, similar, yeah. Very similar rule set to kill team. Um, similar objective-based stuff. It, it Like I said, it's kill team for Age of Sigmar. I haven't played uh, Warcry. I did watch some videos of it for the first edition when it came out. And one of the things I really liked is that there are uh, there are no armor saves because at that time it was the whole theme of the game was it was various chaos war bands all duking it out. Yeah, that's how and, it started. Yeah, and the fact that you didn't have armor saves or anything like that, it really gave it the vibe of it's just these big chaos dudes just beating the ever-loving shit out of each other. And I don't know how much that's changed with the additions, but that was one thing I liked about the original release. Yeah. Um, there's another Games Workshop one that we will talk about a little later. I think you can guess what I, that is. I can probably guess what it is. Yeah. I probably almost would have blurted it out because I'm just determined to interrupt you this entire episode that's fine that'll come up when we get to the what i'm referring to as the outliers of the miniature wargaming uh Yay. the next one is going to be one of the most popular ones currently star wars legion Woo! it's uh star wars it has some of it has a fairly large player base it has a very recognizable and easy to get people into aesthetic and setting i mean it, it's Star Wars. You you slap Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader down on the table and people go, I know that I know how this game should function. And luckily, most of the effects function similar to how they did in the movies or TV shows or wh whatever the source material is. So it's pretty easy to grasp. Um, that being said, army size can vary. It is closer to Warhammer 40k than it is to a skirmish game. Uh, but the individual packs of models tend to be cheaper on a per-model basis. Uh, they're also they're, they're about the same size as 40k models, and um, yeah, it, it's a just a different style of sci-fi war game. The rules, I think, are much better than 40k with some really interesting mechanics. Uh, we'll, I'll second that. We'll do a whole episode on Star Wars Legion at some point. Uh, the next one, or I guess two, are Frostgrave and Stargrave. The best games ever made. They are indie war. They are interesting here because they are model agnostic and indie. They are published by an independent publisher, 
Osprey Press, uh, directly from Joseph McCullough, the designer. And they don't use a specific line of models. They do sell a specific line of models, but it's not required. You can use whatever fantasy or science fiction models you want. Uh, Being indie, though, it does require that you wear a fedora while you play. Only for Osgrave. Uh, Stargrave, you have to wear, like, LEDs. Um, it has an active community, and it's not as organized as some of the other games, though. So, in a lot of cases, you may have to, like, start the community yourself, or find out uh, who, who wants to play this game. The upside is, due to the incredibly low barrier to entry, you one book and... 10 models uh it's easy to get people who play other war games to get in to hop into frostgrave or stargrave for just a game here or there um the next one is probably the next most popular infinity the game which we played do not choose this as your first option do not choose <laughs> infinity back. as your first game the models are finicky the rules are complicated but it's such a lovely game when you start understanding how the systems work. Yeah. Um, as, as much as this game is like the bane of my hobby existence, I keep coming back to it. Yes. Once you understand how the systems in the game work, once you get your amazingly detailed metal miniatures all painted up and in position, it's fun. Yep. But uh, it, it's nice because it's a skirmish game and... You, you generally are never going to have more than 15 models on a team, uh, which is a pretty solid thing. It's also nice because the rules are free and available in PDF form. Um, and you can buy an entire faction for $250. They, did, they even pub, did they even publish N4 in physical form, or is it only PDF? I believe they do have a book that you can buy. I don't think most people buy it. I I think it's mostly for, uh, like, stores that run events to have a physical copy. I'm the kind of weirdo that likes to have both a physical copy that I can reference in-game rather than having to flip through a PDF, but also like having a PDF uh, so that I can read it while I'm laying in bed or sitting in an electrical room waiting on hold with tech support. I like how the Army Builder, which is free and available as an app and online links to the uh not the pdf but the wiki version of the rules allowing you to use hyperlinks to figure out what the various effects of different like weapons and actions might be it's yes really every game great. needs to do this yeah it, it's amazing it makes it really easy to like answer the question without having to flip through 500 pages of rules it's the smartest rule set like back end that i have seen um, the next one is something that Ed's been painting. It's Song of oh Ice boy. and Fire. Woo! Now, this is a highly specific setup of fantasy wargaming uh, with more emphasis on the war uh, and less emphasis on the fantasy. Uh, the models are decent. I, I feel like the sculpts are a little static. They're... They're mid-range quality, yeah. but part of part of at least the appeal for me is having them be pre-assembled and doing pre-assembled miniatures like that. You really can't do like the super dynamic stuff that you get with um, Infinity or 40K where, you know, it, it comes in a million little pieces. Yeah. Uh, it also has a reasonable um, player base, but not as big as some of these other games we're starting to get into the like more niche games here and you know perhaps with the success of the new house of the dragon show it'll pick up again who knows yeah like i said earlier it it surprisingly caught on in our area and honestly i thought the game was just going to be one of those things that they were doing just you know to cash in on the popularity of the show and it was a you know a thing that existed but nobody really played it but uh, Song of Ice and Fire got some legs on it, and it does because it's a fairly well-made game. It takes, you know, what I liked about Warhammer Fantasy, uh, keeps that, and 
gets rid of most of the bad stuff from Warhammer Fantasy. It also gets rid of a lot of the fantasy. So if you want orcs and elves and goblins and trolls and dwarves, you're going to have to play something else. Yep, sorry. You're stuck with Age of Sigmar. And speaking of something else that's lots of fantasy, Malifaux is a weird steampunk fantasy noir game it's all the it's all the genres put into a blend yeah it's a genre blender it's a skirmish game so it's fewer models the models are a little finicky it is not nearly as popular as anything we've discussed so far so finding a group that plays it is going to be harder but it's kind of cool yeah there and it's very there was a there was a group that was playing fairly regularly um back around the time that i tried to get into the game uh, I think the store that they were at may have since closed, but it's definitely not as popular as it used to be. I don't even I don't even see the stuff stocked at our local stores anymore. Yeah, neither do I. But they stopped carrying a lot of different things, so I can't really use that as a judgment call. Uh, also true. The next one we did an entire episode on, and you should go listen to it because it's Gaslands. Woo! Probably the second best war game. Gaslands is, out of all the ones we've talked about, by far the easiest to get into. Hot Wheels are a dollar. Hot Wheels. Go buy all of them. Or sometimes a dollar twenty-five. I think there's been some inflation, depending on where you are. Oh, uh, thanks, Joe Biden. <laughs> Hot, Hot Wheels are cheap. You need Hot Wheels and a book and some dice. And I guess the movement templates, but you can, like, print the last page of the book to get those. Yep. And then cut them out. It is dead simple. It's lots of fun. And who doesn't want to play Mad Max with Hot Wheels cars? Gaslands is it's great. It's a socially acceptable way for 30-year-olds to play with Hot Wheels. Yeah. Gaslands <laughs> is great. It is possibly the best starter miniatures game on this list. Uh, it is the least war gamey of all the miniatures games that we've talked about so far, though. So if you really want to do a war game... Maybe look a little further, but if you just want to have fun with miniatures, Gaslands is a great place to start. Yep, I'll agree with that. Uh, next up is Marvel Crisis Protocol. Woo! Uh, the superhero game, essentially. Uh, there have been a lot of different superhero games throughout you know, the years. Uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol is the most recent I'm not going to say it's the most successful, because time will tell on that, but it certainly has some of the nicest models that they've made for these games, and uh, the rules are interesting. They're not super beginner-friendly, but it does have an excellent starter box. Yeah, the starter box is good. Um, honestly, from a hobby standpoint, I wouldn't recommend Crisis Protocol as a beginner, because... Uh, these models are second only to infinity in terms of finickiness. And these ones are even made of plastic. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I, if, if you really love Marvel, if you love all things Marvel and have to get Captain America or Spider-Man or whoever into your game scene, then you're going to want to pick up Marvel crisis protocol. Otherwise maybe later once you've, you know, assembled a few more miniatures. I mean, it was pretty awesome to have uh, Carol Danvers pick up a dumpster and just absolutely annihilate Black Widow with it. That was very satisfying. Yeah, I imagine it would be. All right, so the next one, we're getting into some of the weird stuff here. Dust 1947. Uh, never actually played that one. Neither have I, but it's a weird World War II game. Uh, it's a World War II with fantasy elements. You've got, like, Cthulhu stuff. You've got werewolves. You've got, like, Tesla coils and walking tanks and stuff. It's for people who want historical stuff but want a little more craziness to it. I'm interested in it. Just some of the models look cool. But, you know, it's it's a war game. It, it's pretty standard. I don't know a whole lot about the rules or how well the models fit together. Just know that it's out there, and it's a. If you really like that sort of alternate history World War II, it's your option. Now, if you don't care about the alternate history and just want the real history, Bolt Action is available, which is a 28 millimeter World War II game. 
that's sort of semi-skirmish. It's small unit combat. Uh, it is widely supported, if not widely played, everywhere. Um, it's the only historical miniatures game we're really talking about today. It uh, has some really fantastic rules ideas uh, with the way dice are drawn to activate units. Yeah, it's essentially it's essentially uh, Warhammer nineteen forty five. <laughs> That's yeah. how I describe it. I think some of the rules are better than Warhammer uh, with activation changes and such, but it is the equivalent of Warhammer in the fantasy uh, in the historical war game scene. Uh, it is. It is nice that uh, because it's like a small-ish unit tactics game. Um, you can buy a box of fifty Soviet infantry, and that will literally be your entire army. You don't need to buy like multiple boxes of dudes. Just one box of Soviet infantry will cover your entire army. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Yeah, and the models are decent quality. They look pretty good. They're fairly easy to paint because you know it's real world stuff they're not gonna be dangling with weird chains or purity seals or whatever um, i hope you enjoy painting green yes you will have to enjoy painting green or gray and brown uh yeah and you know if you want to get into historical miniatures wargaming it is one of the most popular ones available so it's a good choice um some areas that may differ but just general advice is bolt action is where your historical miniature wargaming should probably start. It's a good starter game for that. Uh, then we have Walking Dead All Out War. I haven't played it. Um, I don't know a lot about it other than it's moderately popular and it's it's for if you want a zombie game and aren't going to dig into some of the niche self-published indie wargame rules. Which we will do an episode, I think, on indie war games just specifically. Uh, where we talk about some of that. So if you want a zombie game, Walking Dead All Out War is your thing. I believe it is also Skirmish, where you have each player is essentially a band of survivors. And then zombies are just on the table. Do you get extra points if you just say Carl, Carl over and over again? I think you get negative points for saying Coral. <laughs> Just to stop people from doing it. Uh, and then we are down to some of the last ones. Sort of the little edge cases. Uh, firstly is Fallout by Mephidius Games. It's a skirmish e game There's also a solo play or like campaign mode for it. Um, the models are... Actually, the, the, the box models, the ones outside of the starter set are pretty nice. Uh, the factions are kind of loose... And they haven't gotten to all of the factions that I'd like to see them get to. Um, they started with, like, Fallout 4 stuff rather than, say, New Vegas, which is kind of a downer. But um, the rules are funky. It uses custom dice that are have too many symbols. Um, so it's not the best starter game. Unless, again, you really love Fallout, in which case... It's the best starter game for you. Uh, I like Fallout, but I don't like Fallout that much. And then we're into the last three, and this is where this sort of becomes weird outliers because they're no longer as much about... They start to have other things going on. And the first one is the one you were thinking of way back when. It's Blood Bowl. Yeah. Blood Bowl is a game of fantasy football published by Games Workshop where you play fantasy football. You, you it's it's like death football played via between elves and humans and dwarves and goblins. It's fun. It's very old school in its rules. Um deliberately so. And the models are nice. They're all plastic. They're nice and sort of... Uh, they manage to be detailed without being overly so. And uh, the rules are fairly simple. And it's played on a grid. Because, you know, it's it's an actual grid. That's There's a field. There's a pitch it, that you can't This lead. gridiron football, son. Yeah. So that simplifies movement and stuff dramatically. 
it is an excellent starting point if you want a sports war game. In fact, it is the sports ball sports ball war game that I would recommend over any of the others. And there are several others. They're just kind of derivative of Blood Bowl. I think Guild Ball is the only other one I know of. Uh, there's one that's like Dread Ball or Dread Bowl or something that's like a sci-fi one. Eh. Yeah, I, I would Blood say just play Blood Bowl. It has a quite active user base, so your odds of finding someone who's willing to play a season of Blood Bowl with you is uh, much higher than most of the games we've been talking about for a while. Uh, that and there's a lot of good third-party support for... Uh, Blood Bowl out there, even though I'm sure G-Dubs hates absolutely that. hates it. Yeah, uh, You can find a lot of other stuff on the internet to go to make your Blood Bowl even better. Yep, that is the case. Uh, the next one, second to last, is Monster Apocalypse. Uh, Want to play it, have a model, uh, continue. Monster Apocalypse is a kaiju rumble. It's Godzilla versus the Pacific Rim robots. It, it, it It's giant monsters and giant robots stomping around a city interestingly enough this is the one where i was talking about terrain being a part of list building because you choose oh, what yeah. terrain is in the thing uh it uses custom dice and rolling giant handfuls of them and is almost as much about like managing energy as it is any other form of tactics um it's interesting i haven't had a chance to play it it uses a lot fewer miniatures than a lot of the games we've talked about because you typically only have what like two giant monsters on each team plus yeah you'll get like two to three giant monsters and then a handful of kind of like mini me type guys so you'll have like tanks or smaller monsters or smaller aliens or you like know that. aircraft or whatever ufos yeah. stuff that are supporting your big monster so it's sort of Less to paint, less to put together, played on, again, sort of a grid uh, with buildings set in it that you can smash, and has some very interesting, very competent rules, but again, player base is fairly small, and I would only recommend it if there is a store near you that stocks and is supporting Monster Apocalypse. Yeah, ours used to. They don't anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, um, one of the ones in the area might, but I haven't delved into that real deep and the last one we're going to talk about is interesting in a number of ways it has a massive player base um but it doesn't have the hobby side because all the miniatures for it are pre-assembled and pre-painted uh i'm talking of course about x-wing oh x-wing is at one end Possibly the easiest of the games we've talked about so far to really get into and play in a like competitive and coherent scene because plenty of places have X-Wing evenings. It is one of the most popular war games currently available and the miniatures are available all over the place. But there's no hobby aspect. The miniatures are all pre-painted, pre-assembled, pre-boxed. And, uh, yeah... It doesn't, doesn't mean you can't hobby it up. You does not mean you can't hobby it up. I have hobbied it up extensively. Um, it's also in kind of a weird space right now. You can listen to our episode specifically on X-Wing if you want to learn more. Also, because you fly ships rather than fighting dudes, it uh, plays quite differently than a gunfight. Because it's a dogfight. It, it, it's one I'd recommend looking into, again, if you like Star Wars, but don't like painting little guys. And that's that's our recommendations on getting started with miniatures wargaming. Ed, anything you want to finish us off with here? Uh, the only other one that I can think of, uh, that if you're a fan of Warhammer Fantasy, but don't want to dive all the way into Age of Sigmar... There's another series called Underworlds, um, which is it's more of a board game that's, than a straight up war game. That's why I didn't talk about it. Yeah. Um, there is cross compatibility, though, between the Underworlds miniatures and Age of Sigmar. So if you want to start playing Age of Sigmar, but don't want to do the whole game, you can kind of start there and build up your force as needed. Um, it is on the expensive end, though. So, yeah trade-offs 
Yeah. But yeah. Trade offs. Everybody should play war games. Everybody should play war games. Well, maybe not everybody, but more people should play war games so that we have more people to play them with so that it's easier to get this started and see how this cycle goes. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose we could have talked about War Machine Hordes, but that is a game that's in a weird place and it's is weirdly kind of dead. I haven't seen anything happen with it lately. Yeah, I think they're doing some new stuff, but it is so dead and so out there that I didn't want to bring it in as a getting started with option. But we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, where we talk about a board game that we think is interesting doesn't mean we think it's good but it's certainly interesting and we want to talk about it and ed it's your turn oh no what a what a horrific idea of me having to do work on this podcast uh which means that you guys should probably play a board game called horrified uh it's published by Ravensburger in 2019 um the designer and artist for it's guy named prospero hall um does a lot of very kind of simple family-friendly games that you'd find, you know, at the game section at Target. Um, this one is about the old-school Universal movie monsters and their ransacking of an unnamed Central European village in an in indeterminate time frame. Um, it's, it sounds bad to call it this, but it's basically a... Uh, uh, what's the the Cthulhu game? Or yeah, it's basically an Arkham Horror knockoff. But the thing is, is that they take all the stuff about Arkham Horror that makes that game such a pain to play, and just gets rid of it. It plays so much faster. Um, the interactions with the monsters are a lot more interesting because depending on how hard you want your game to be, you can have anywhere between like two and six movie monsters on the board at any one time that you have to defeat before the terror track uh, causes all the villagers to flee. And each monster has its own set of conditions that you need to expose the monster and then defeat it. And the whole time they're running around screwing with stuff. Um, and it's got a really nice uh, kind of 1920s art style uh that goes with everything. Um, it's pretty simple to play each, uh, I guess each turn is broken up into the player phase where the player character moves around, does all their stuff. And then there's a monster phase where you draw from a deck that has, um, the action AI cards for whatever monsters you have in this game. And then you just follow whatever those monsters do. So you can't really quite predict what they're going to do at any one time. Um, or even which monster is going to activate. So, you know, you could think that you're safe from Frankenstein and then, oh shit, you flip the card and Frankenstein's coming right towards you and you just got chomped and now your terror track has gone up by a point. Um, there are some weird design conditions where the last game that we played, um, the Invisible Man accidentally destroyed all the evidence that we needed to expose him, so we would not have been able to win the game. That seems like something the Invisible Man would do, yes. Yeah, but that was just kind of like a weird quirk of shuffling and where all the clues ended up because they ended up, both the clues for the Invisible Man ended up in the same location and he ransacked that and discarded all those on the same turn. So it was kind of a fluke, but, you know, you, you get you get weird things that happen like that in pretty much any game and it involves some amount of shuffling. Um, but yeah, if you aren't a fan of Cthulhu or... Arkham Horror is just too intimidating, which I do not blame you. Uh, give Horrified a try. It's, uh, in my opinion, it's a better game. And also the Universal Movie Monsters, uh, they don't get as much attention as they should. I think Cthulhu and Lovecraft is a bit overplayed at this point. So try something new. Yeah, I would definitely think it's worth trying. And that's Board Game Corner. And with that, Woo! our podcast comes to an end. I'd like to welcome you all to spooky season, as it is now October. Spooky! Um, and as always, you can listen, subscribe, like, do the things, do the social media interactions that cause more people to listen to the podcast. It seems to be working, so that's nice. Um, Yay, I'm going to keep being weird on Twitter then. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. We are at Knoll Country. Follow us on Instagram, at Knoll Country. 
see the stuff I post on Reddit sometimes, occasionally, every month or two. Uh, at Noel Country for Old Men. Um, do the things Ed's about to tell you to do. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Anna Madness. Uh, you'll probably see some of my slap chop space dwarves up there fairly soon. I mean, I've finished a fair amount of them here just in the time that we've been talking. Um, what else? Uh, you can donate to True Colors United to help all the queer children. Uh, you can support the Ukrainians and the Armenians via the Red Cross. Uh, you can definitely not talk to the cops. Um, you can not go... annex parts of countries. Yes. Don't do that. You have your country, and you can't you can't have any Ukraine until you finish your Russia. Yes, and until you finish like improving the lives of everyone in Russia, don't invade other countries. And as always. Go Knowles. Go Knowles.